Welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I am Doug Belshaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com slash we are open. So one of the things I miss about my old podcast today in digital education or Tide is talking about the things that are happening right now, like this week, and what's on our brains and minds. So I reckon we should do an episode where it's just us talking about stuff. I don't know. Let's find out whether or not we actually ever release this episode. Who knows? There we go. So this uh, season is supposed to be about cooperatives, and we both have worked and own a cooperative, which is now seven years old. Can you believe that? Yesterday. We had a birthday yesterday, and we didn't um, celebrate yet. We should. So the reason I didn't write anything was because after we were in Amsterdam in January, we wrote a blog post that said we're almost seven. Right. So you felt like, oh, we already announced that we're having a birthday. Yeah. But maybe we should do something. Anyway, we're recording this on the 2nd of May, which is probably important, given that we're going to be talking about things which are top of mind and probably currently relevant. Hopefully, they're still relevant when you're listening to this. There is a good chance that this podcast doesn't come out until sometime in the summer, because we actually have a couple of podcast episodes pre-recorded that we recorded before this episode, which we will release first. But mm. we haven't been releasing them because... We well, have been doing other things. <laughs> let's just talk about that, right? So my parents used to say to me when I was younger, and I say to my son who's 16, that like that, that money burns a hole in my or their pocket. So, for example, it was the 1st of May yesterday, and it's the 2nd of May today, and my son got his pocket money and has spent pretty much all of it today because the money goes in the pocket, it burns a hole, and he spends it on whatever. And... There's a little bit of that vibe, and I only say this because I know you well, Laura, but there's a little bit of that vibe with the content that we produce in the co-op. So we produce stuff, and we have to put it out straight away. Yeah. it's. A, I think that this is just a habit that's built over the past, whatever, 20 years since we've been banging out our keyboards and putting stuff out on the internet. I mm. don't. I don't sit on content. I've never done that before. Uh, so at the moment we, we are sitting on content and it's just a weird feeling to have things that are done that I would like people to give feedback on or that I think are, you know, helpful or relevant to people and then waiting to put it out. It's like, so, so it could be said that this podcast episode is a little bit of a release valve because if we put this out and out first, then we've recorded and released one quite quickly. There you go. Oh, so then we should say that we haven't recorded the other two. Or we could just not put this out. I don't, this don't is see getting why away from to... me. <laughs> well, look, look, we're breaking down the fourth wall and we're telling people that, you know, things are coming. Things are coming. That's true. Anyway, right. What's, you You were talking to me just now about some community stuff. Do you want to talk about that? And I'll talk about what I've been up to and the books I've been reading and that kind of thing. Yeah, so a while ago, our very close collaborator, uh, Brian Mathers, did a graphic for us um, that's called The Art of Community. 
And I'll make sure to link to it from, from this episode, but essentially it's a graphic of a person at the front of a room um, with the words art of community written in big letters on kind of like a presentation screen. And then there's somebody in the audience saying something along the lines of, okay, but how is this going to help our KPIs? I can't remember exactly what it says. I don't have it open right now. So extracting um, value. Yeah, extracting value from your community, which is such a weird way to think about community. And I've, I notice um, that people or organizations tend to be on one end of the spectrum. Either they um, only want to extract value from their community and their whole purpose of having a community is to extract this value or they kind of don't know what they're doing with their community and it's kind of just oh well we'll just kind of see what happens and but without putting like the the mechanisms in place to ensure that something does happen they're just like oh well we'll open the doors and then people will come in so do, when you say because some people might be listening to this and thinking what do you mean by extracting value do you mean like free marketing and stuff yeah so i mean exposure marketing is on my shit list this week anyways <laughs> um <laughs> because i yeah in like i just i had somebody waste my time um with the idea of exposure marketing and i feel like i've wasted a lot of my time with this idea but anyways um yeah so part of it's like marketing it's it's transactional on the one side like mm. they're we're going to do this for our community so that they give us x so that they i don't know so that they talk about our product at conferences or so yeah so, it is kind of a marketing thing so like swag so you say nice things about our product and we give you swag in return yeah so i've got a question about that i know it's been a while but when we were both at mozilla community like that felt like quite a an awesome community to be part of but swag was still like part of the deal and like scoring free invites to events and all that kind of stuff so is is there a demarcation between the two or is it a bit of a fuzzy line i mean i don't i don't really think that people who are members of communities are members and active because they want swag like, mm. I think swag is a nice to have, but I don't think that people stay involved in a community just because every once in a while somebody sends them some stickers or something. Like, I don't think that's a real motivator. Um, so do you think it's, so we talk about open recognition and stuff a lot. Do you think that the swag is a, a form of recognition? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I, I mean, I'm really talking about, like, I'm kind of looking at it from the other side. So groups of people or organizations who decide to make a community because they want to extract this value, they want to get something out of the existence of the community. Like, um, like, like the example I gave, where we will have more people buy our product if we have an active community of people who are talking about our product. So it's like using community members as like a marketing arm. And I think that that's really short-sighted um, because community can be so much more than a marketing arm, you know? So instead of, so a perfect example of this in terms of our clients would be an organization like Participate. So we do talk about their platform um, and we give them feedback in terms of what could be better and we we don't just point everyone towards it as if we're shills. But that's because we're 
trying we're on a bigger mission together mm -hmm. as the two organizations like we're trying to help the world understand what open recognition is and how you can use badges and verifiable credentials in meaningful ways within communities um, communities of practice landscapes of practice that kind of thing and the platform although obviously it matters to participate because that's how they make their money that's not why the community's there in fact some members of the community might not even register apart from like typing in participate.com that it's hosted on that particular platform because it's just wherever the community is who's talking about this stuff i think i mean i think that's a really interesting thing what you just said there i believe that we have plenty of people in in the community in the keep badges weird community which is currently going through a little bit of a rebranding um who have not registered onto the platform. They're members of the community, they maybe come to community calls or they identify as a member of the community without ever having like said in an online environment, we're, you know, I'm here mm. in this online mm. environment. And I think that, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about community is like that identity piece and that recognition piece abstracted away from where the community gathers. Because mm. like, if you're at a conference and somebody you've never met before walks up to you and says, oh, I'm a member of the Keep Badges Weird community. And this person, you know they're not a member of the platform. It doesn't mean that that like they don't identify as being a member of the community just because they didn't sign up, you know? And right. so you would you would interact with that person as if they are a member of the commu community because they've self-identified as such. Am I making sense? Yeah, so... It's interesting when you start kind of getting into like what what are we doing when we're doing community stuff? So you mentioned identity and it's when you say that you're a member of a community or if you interact within that community, it's like a shorthand for we believe in the same things in terms of mission and values and whatever. And there might be quite a, a big church, like broad tent kind of thing, but broadly we're on the same kind of path, mm -hmm. I kind of thing. Um and I was listening to a podcast. I don't often listen to This Week in Tech because it's very long and it's super American as well. Like they started just talking about basketball for the entire like first five minutes of this podcast. But um, they were talking about Blue Sky and Mastodon and stuff. And it's interesting to me when you talk about community in the sense of decentralized networks as well, because they were talking about on Blue Sky how you know, further down the line, it's not there yet. You'll be able to use your cryptographic key and just move yourself to a different instance. And you can do that with Macedon, obviously. And I've moved a couple of times. There's another conversation happening within social.com where I'm right now about moderation. And one of the things that they get to, and the panelists on This Week in Tech had Brianna Wu and like people who work for Google and Facebook and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of it, what they realized was, I think they quoted someone else in saying, when you kind of get in community and you kind of join together for a conversation on a particular platform, what you're paying for or what you're gathering around is content moderation. Mm -hmm. Like to make sure that that conversation stays um, appropriate. And what is appropriate might be completely different in a, in a place where, where people are talking about motorbikes compared to where people are talking about pedagogy or whatever. So I think it's really interesting how nuanced and how community stuff is actually like an art instead of a science. 
That being said, you've literally just been gathering data <laughs> on some community stuff. Uh, yeah, I, um, I don't know, sometime last year you read a book. And like you sat down and you read a book, uh, Buzzing Communities, I think it was called. Yeah, so um, Buzzing Communities by Richard Millington. Yeah, and so, dear listener, what happened was Doug had a day and read an entire book in a day. And I think I was off. I don't know where I was. But when I came back, there was just like a inspired Doug's brain on a whimsical board that was just mm -hmm. like all about some data. Um, and so we were, we were thinking, oh, hey, you know what? We should have a better data approach to um, community building and one particular community. Uh, and so we've been looking at the data uh, for Keep Badges Weird periodically. And I just did this quarter's uh, look at the data. It was very interesting. I feel like I have to remind myself every time I do it. What did I do last time? How did I cal calculate what active engagement actually is? I think that's like the tricky part is like um, if you're looking at data, if you're pulling numbers, you have to have some opinion about what does it mean to be actively engaged. Um, and so remembering what our opinions were, you know, six months ago, that was a little tricky, but I figured it out. I left myself very good notes and I said, thank you very much past, uh, past Laura and Doug and Anna for documenting this so well. Well, again, going back to kind of decentralized communities and, and all that kind of jazz, um, there was there was a, there's a blog. The most recent post on the Macedon blog talks about how uh, the the founder of of Macedon has changed his mind and he's going to be doing or allowing quote posts on on Macedon. Um, if you go and sign up on the official Macedon app, you'll be directed towards macedon.social. That wasn't previously the case. You had to choose a server and um, you're going to be able to do uh, search profiles as well. Um, and when I linked to this, I used the technology adoption lifecycle, um, which is that kind of bell curve where you've got innovators and early adopters, then early majority, late majority and laggards. Mm -hmm. And one version of this chart has what's known as the chasm. So it's very easy to get people who are really excited about a given area, including the technology that you use to um, interact with each other, uh, to get excited about stuff. So, you know, you've got several million people using Macedon and other Fediverse kind of software now. But how do you get, like, I don't know, like other people who aren't like us using it? Well, that's, that's where the chasm comes in. And crossing the chasm, there's lots of stuff written about that. Um, and I was saying, look, perhaps it's inevitable that we're going to have to have quote posts and like a default server and profile surf search if we want to cross the chasm. Um, and someone replied to me saying, well, my thought is, why do we need to cross the chasm? And I get the, I get the vibe behind that of just like, why can't we just keep it to people like us? But eventually you run out of people because people stop using stuff or they move on or they like, and if... I, you've met, you've already mentioned Brian Laura, but Brian used to say that that quotation from the Shawshank Redemption: "You got to get this. You either get busy living or you get busy dying." And that that's true of communities as well. If communities aren't undergoing some kind of growth, however you decide growth means, then they're they're going to slowly die. And so Richard Millington's mm. book Buzzing Communities is actually about how do you measure growth and what does growth look like and what does 
being active look like? And so it feels a little bit slimy is the wrong word, but like awkward and weird to be putting numbers next to community because mm. we're not treating the community as a product. But mm. what we're trying to do is to make sure it's healthy. That's the, that's yeah. the idea. But I, I think that this is the thing to underline that like the healthiness of a community. So if any, anybody who's been a member of any sort of community has probably had a, their cycle within that community. Like you're not, I don't know. I, when I was a kid, I was a Girl Scout. I was very involved in the Girl Scout community. I went to camp. I had meetings every week. Um, you know, I moved up the, the hierarchy of from being a Daisy to a Brownie, to a Girl Scout, to a junior, whatever they are all called. I earned tons of badges, by the way, physical ones. Um, and I learned a lot of skills in that program. And at some point, I stopped being a Girl Scout. Now, I am no longer a Girl Scout community member. I don't, I mean, every once in a while, if I'm lucky, I'm in the United States when they're selling Girl Scout cookies and then I get to eat the cookies. But by and large, it's been, you know, what, 25 years showing my age here uh, since I was a member of that community. Like I, I grew out of it. And I think this happens all the time. And what people mm. don't realize is that when you have quote unquote leadership within a community, however that leadership manifests, whether it's somebody who's paid, for example, by Mozilla to be a community leader, if it's somebody who's volunteering their time, those people who are in leadership positions can, can and do at some point grow out of it. Um, and the community no longer serves their needs, they move on. And mm. if that happens without healthy community growth and distributed leadership, then the, the community folds. And then mm. there's a bunch of people who are just left like, oh, what happened here? And I think that that's something people don't un understand about distributed leadership. Just because it's distributed doesn't mean that there aren't like key figures within a community and making sure that those people are supported and remain supported and that there is growth within that smaller circle of leadership is a way to keep a community healthy. For sure, so, because let's say you're an academic and you're an early career researcher. Well, you're not going to be an early career researcher forever. You're going to be a mid-career researcher and a like a senior researcher or whatever. Hmm. So you hanging around in the early career researcher forums might be useful in terms of, you know, giving a, a different perspective, but you're going to be out of date quite quickly because the problems that you experienced and the tips that you can give people and the relevance it's going to have to you are going to, you know, go by the wayside. So yeah, I think people move on. So let's, let's link back to the, to the chasm um, and that that space between the early adopters, if we're looking at this not in from a product lens, but from a community lens, mm -hmm. um, do we, I mean, really, if you're looking at it from a community lens, then then the idea is simply that early adopters need to continue to grow and to get an early majority so that they can move on and maybe age out of the community, not age like a number, but like in terms of contribution and years. Yeah. And there's, there's something I've seen this and you can do this in a kind of um, really sleazy, like charlatan kind of way where you just keep on coming up with new initiatives, which are 
not that different from one another. But the reason you're doing it is because it looks like you're always doing new stuff. Um, someone who is very close to, I would say, being like so close, so, so close to it being a little bit charlatanesque, I would say would be Douglas Rushkoff. Mm-hmm. So I think he's just on the right side of like staying cool, you know, being a valued member of the, the global community doing cool stuff around tech. But he does keep rebranding the stuff he's doing with a different gloss. And I can see why he does it because things have a shelf life, a natural kind of um, amount of attention that they can garner from, from people. Mm. And this is why people move on on LinkedIn to the latest thing. And it's quite obvious that some people are just hopping for the latest fad. But if you put those on a spectrum, if you had like everything from fad where people are just jumping whatever the latest trending topic is through to like the really deep work that doesn't really change over decades and generations, then what we're trying to do, I guess, is to be somewhere in the middle, trying to keep what is the unchanging deep work fresh and relevant for current generations so we don't go out of date. And you see so many people like lose their relevance because they don't know how to translate that deep ongoing work into the language that people can engage with on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. So now tie this back to, um, I didn't read the conversation that you were having on Mastodon and I'm actually kind of sad about it, but um, with the with what's happening in the Mastodon community at the moment, which I've also been tracking, but not actually commenting on. Um, mm. I think, I mean, I it's really interesting because I mean, this is the the, something that we talk a lot about is about like the difference between being pragmatic with your tech choices and um, being a little too idealistic. Yeah. So Dan Sinker, who we worked with at Mozilla, generally an awesome person and um, headed up the open using initiative. He replied to that saying, um, making things easy for people that aren't hardcore isn't selling out unless the goal is exclusivity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, well, you know, the goal can sometimes be education and enlightenment, I guess, but I don't see much of that happening either, sadly. And I guess the point I'm making is that you can go down the route of of Facebook and other organizations like that, that basically A-B tested times a billion until it was so easy to use their technology that you did never had to think. And there's there's some value in that. But as we found with the Mozilla work and WebMaker and whatever, if you don't know what's going on on the other side of that screen, then you are ripe to be exploited. Hmm. So I think there's a balance between the little bit of friction so you can make you can give informed consent and you're deciding what you're doing. Like I would say that choosing a server on Mastodon, yes, it's unusual compared to things like Twitter and Facebook, but it's not ridiculous to ask people to do that, I don't think. It's it's no different from someone poked fun at it saying, oh, I don't know how to use the internet because when you open a browser, you have to decide which website you're going to. Like it's not ridiculous to ask people to join an instance, especially because you can move between them. But on the other hand, yes, there are some things which... Mastodon and other Fediverse apps can do about um, making it easy for people. 
One of the big controversies that I don't really have a strong opinion about is um, quote-unquote black Twitter. So when people of colour who decide to leave Twitter came to Mastodon and the Fediverse, and this is talked in much more detail by much greater minds than me on the on the Twit podcast, um, they expected quote tweets mm-hmm. um, because they call out behaviours which are not cool mm-hmm. and show the rest of the community or, or highlight stuff that is going well and like celebrate each other's successes. And when they couldn't do that, they basically said, you know, why, why can't we do this? What's going on? And because there'd been the conversation about quote tweets and quote toots a lot in the early days of Mastodon and whether it was a good thing to do or not, people were a little bit dismissive, which they, rightly or wrongly, and I don't know the answer to this, saw as racist because they were basically told like they didn't, their request didn't have a part in the Fediverse. And so there's been this real tension between like the OGs in the Fediverse and Mastodon in particular and people of color and people who haven't been part of the original conversation coming in and saying, but what about us? We weren't part of that conversation and why can't I have this feature? And that's not cool and whatever. And there's been a little a little bit, a lot of them being dismissed. Yeah, I actually recall writing a post about this um, dealing with, I called it dealing with um, criticism in your open source project or something mm. like that. I'll have to dig it out. Um, but it was it was about it was about how you actually deal with requests and criticisms with empathy when people come to your project after your project is already started, right? So it sounds like the example that you just gave, like there are the OGs in communities as well and in any sort of open source product and in the Fediverse and et cetera, people who have been there for so long and they get tired of having a repeating conversation over and over and over. But part of the art of community is to be able to have those conversations in a way that is supportive to newbies in the community as well. So being dismissive about like, I mean, I have seen this in offline communities as well. You you have people who have been involved for, you know, five years or whatever, and then a newbie comes in and says, oh, but have you thought about X? And the, you know, the OGs are like, yeah, we thought about X. We talked about it for like three years. We did this. We did that. We did the other. I don't want to talk about X anymore. But this is like for the new person bringing up X, they're like, A, they're trying to contribute to the community. B, they don't have the, the context and the historical legacy of what's already happened in that community. And when you are dismissive to that new person, there's a good chance that they're going to leave the community, the project, the product, whatever, um, because they, they don't feel seen or heard. And so there's this balance between how do we um, help the OGs or the old guard continue to move forward? Um, and how do we, you know, how do we make sure people feel included and bring them in? And this is, I think this is, that's that art point and that's the tension and people who are good at it, both in open source software development and community building, whatever people who are good at it, understand that that tension is going to be there and try to figure out ways both to, to support both kinds of people, the old guard and the new guard. And sometimes that means, you know, letting go, spinning out. 
This is something that we've also talked about. Like, when does a project get to the point or a community get to the point where it's time to separate it into something mm-hmm. else? Um, no, I think it's a really good point. And I, I'll not be able to find it again because Mastodon hasn't, doesn't have full text search. <laughs> but um, it was talking, it was a meme, and it was just talking about how basically the role of activism, and I would add evangelism to that as well, in terms of like whatever it is you're evangelizing, evangelizing not just Christianity. But the role of activists slash evangelists is to continually explain stuff to people in different ways and ways that they understand, not just telling them to Google it. Mm -hmm. And you get a lot of very tech people telling people to like read the documents and just Googling it and whatever. I'm going to put a link in the notes to what's known as the eternal September or the September that never ended. And there used to be this thing called Usenet. There still is, but it's not as very popular. And apparently in 1993, I was 12 and I wasn't online at the time, um, but uh, internet service providers began offering Usenet, which was like a, I guess it was like a distributed forum between servers. They began offering Usenet access to lots of new users and that flood of new users overwhelmed the existing culture for online forums and the ability to enforce existing norms. AOL followed with their Usenet gateway service in March 1994, leading to a constant stream of new users, and hence from the early Usenet point of view, the influx influx of new users in September 1993 never ended, hence eternal September. And this is the problem of communities that you've eloquently described, trying to keep the OGs happy and trying to keep the new people happy, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And I, I... I don't have any easy answers apart from segmenting things, spinning things off like you've like you've already said, I guess. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's a, I mean it's a, it's interesting in the context of Mastodon as well because, you know, I think I I haven't tracked that conversation that closely. Um but, you know, when quote black Twitter felt dismissed, called it racist, um I would I would wonder aloud on this podcast, um, how diverse was the group of people that were building the Fediverse, uh, you know, six, seven years ago? Because I... Well, there were a lot of, there were a lot of trans people, mm-hmm. but as far as I'm aware, there were a lot of, they were all white, as far as I'm aware. I, I, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I think that when somebody um, who, you know, when, when community members come in and question why, you know, why they don't feel represented in a particular piece of software or why their use case isn't addressed. Like being dismissive is just downright like the worst thing to do because you're not making the software any better, being dismissive of potential user needs because one person can could very well be representative of an entire group of people. Mm. And like with Black mm. Twitter, that's certainly the case. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I think it's very difficult <laughs> to be part of a group of people who have built a thing and by the thing, it could be a product or a community and then new people who represent a new group, whatever that new group is, however big that new group is come along. And one of the first things that they say is I don't feel represented by this thing. And it's Mm. so, so easy to take to, for the, for the first response to that to be, well, maybe this isn't for you then. And that's the Mm. wrong answer. That's the wrong answer, but it's so tempting to give that answer. Mm. Yeah. 
wow, this got deep. I'm because I have all these examples in my head of, of like, I mean, I'm, you know, in my middle age, I have, I have. I'm glad you're reti- embracing that now. I'm, I'm starting to. I have retired from various communities for various reasons. Um, and I've also, you know, I've also had the realization, not that I've been pushed out of a community, but that I felt that it grew in a way where I didn't feel represented anymore or mm. that like I felt like a lot of the work that I had done no longer mattered. Um, and it's it's strange because, you know, it, this is all emotional stuff, right? Like this is all about how do you, in a community, how do you be the best person that you can be, have the empathy that you need to build in that community. And, you know, sometimes it is maybe the right thing to say that this product doesn't do X because, and like with the Fediverse, I certainly see this because a lot of the reasoning behind certain feature decisions has to do with the unfortunate circumstance that we've gotten ourselves into with technology, where, you know, things like behavioral economics have literally changed the fabric of our society, you know, Mm. like, and we as technologists have a responsibility to think about that. But the people using the internet today, (laughs) and the masses, it's not their responsibility to think about it. So that's another balance that we, you know, that I feel like we're responsible for is how do we how do we, you know, empathetically explain that we chose certain decisions or we made certain decisions because we wanted to, you know, stop like something bigger from continuing to happen? I don't know. Well, I think the interesting thing f- for me, like you mentioned about the impact of technology and how it changes society. And if you, you know, and we reference kind of webmaker there before um, mm. and people having an understanding of stuff if you don't know how things work and like we're talking about apparently some people who have grown up with iOS and Apple devices like literally not knowing what a file system is if you don't know what those things are I'm not saying that everyone needs to know the whole history of the web everyone needs to know all of the like slightly outdated things to do with computers but if you've got literally no clue about any of that, then again, you're you know it's easy to it's easy for you to be exploited, and also for for you not to really know what it is that you want when it comes to anything like social applications, any products that you use online, etc. Um, so, yeah, I was just going to say I feel like as a you know as a educator um, or you know as as somebody who thinks quite deeply about these kinds of things. I think it's it's a product maker's, a technologist. If you consider yourself a technologist or an ethical technologist, then it's also part of your responsibility to help people understand these things, to help people understand, um, you know, that like that social media did uh, change how we exist as a species and how people interact with each other and to help people understand why that happened, what the history of it is, why, you know, how we can make different decisions in the future and use uh, technology as a tool um, to, to better the world. But like all of that kind of deep thinking around what technology does to people, that's not everybody's job. It's our job as technologists. It's not Mm. everybody's job all the time. Like it's just too much weight. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so we you can't know everything about everything, but there's there's surely like a minimum. The 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 often the example often cited is like a car, which is possibly a bad example, but like you've had to know less and less about how a car works as time goes on, as they become more and more like computers on wheels. So you don't need to know like how to do something. I don't even know what the words are like with your carburetor and do an entire oil change and all this kind of stuff because your car is not going to break down that spectacularly. And if it did, you've probably got roadside assistance. Um, so what you need to know changes as time goes on, but there's still a minimum amount of stuff that you need to know. I'm definitely not saying that you need a driving license to use the internet. Like let's not go down that route, but there's definitely, but there's definitely some stuff that it's important to know. Otherwise you're not, you're at the whim and mercy of everything that's kind of going on. And this, I mean, that's really interesting because actually, like, it makes me think at the moment, um, Germany, where I live, is um, actually facing sort of a vocational crisis. And so basically, people are not learning traditional vocations like carpentry or mechanics. um, And the German population is quite old. Um, Mm -hmm. So real bell curve in the in the more elderly side of age. Um, and young people are not studying or learning these these vocations. So if my car breaks down, which you know I got a Volvo, so it's fine. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Me too. Uh, I don't I don't technically have a car, but anyways, um, if my car breaks down and there's no mechanics to help me, then you know, like then there's there's a stop, right? Like I can't, I literally can't do anything about my car being broke down if there's no mechanics. And with the internet, I feel like the more and more people are learning to look under the hood, but are not maybe learning how to think about the kinds of impacts this can have in for society. And I feel like people are looking at that from our, um, you know, from our professional network or our professional circle. People are certainly still interested in the ethics around technology, but like with. AI, you know, barreling ahead and people just like using it without even thinking about what it, what it could do. I think we're getting to the point where we need more mechanics, uh, to be actually thinking about this, you know, internet plus society problem. And we need more Mm -hmm. people who are thinking about it to make sure that they are being empathetic towards the quote unquote masses and helping those people learn a little bit more. So it all comes back to education, I guess I'm saying. Well, to, to reflect on that, I think we've got the similar problem all over the Western Western world where young people want to be YouTubers and influencers and professional footballers instead of carpenters and plumbers and electricians, mm-hmm. even though there's quite a lot of money to be made in being a tradesman in the UK, at least, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, I think you can, how can I say this in a way which isn't kind of glib and dismissive, but like, if you want to go and fix your toilet or change the, your car tire, or do something where, like, I just need to know this thing. I don't need to know how it all works. Like, there's a YouTube video or a TikTok video for that. But if you want to craft something, if it's a longer-term thing than just, like, fixing it or bodging it or whatever, like, that's something which is a bit of a crisis. And the other thing, and I would say this, but, like, the philosophy behind everything and the deeper thinking behind, like, why are we doing this? Like, should we not just stop and have a, you know, if we if we can't stop, you know, like that that um, 
what was it called? The that, that letter that went out. So like, let's pause mm. all AI for six months. Ridiculous. Like no one's going to do that. Mm. But we still should be thinking carefully about where we're going, not just like scaremongering. Like today, there was someone who's quit their job at Google so that they can speak out about AI. No, they've quit Google because they're 75 and it's time to retire. And now they've got some stuff which they're not under an NDA around anymore. Let's just get that right. <laughs> but like, it's not all scaremongering. Some of it is like, this is going to be awesome. This mm -hmm. is going to be amazing because you're not going to have to read some shitty report that has loads of typos in anymore, right? Or or whatever it's going to be. Like, we're going to be leaning on a lot of the world's knowledge so that things actually have some research behind them and stuff. Mm. Anyway, all of this brings me, at least, to a book that I read yesterday. So I went over on my ankle yesterday morning while out running, and I'd heard a lot, and I asked ChatGPT what I should do. And it gave me some advice, which I already knew, which is the RICE kind of protocol, which is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. So I did all of that, and I lay on the sofa. And my family was astounded, astounded that on a bank holiday, all I wanted to do was to lie and read this book. So it's called At Work in the Ruins, Finding Our Place in the Time of Science, Climate Change, Pandemics, and All the Other Emergencies by Dougald Hine. And I've read... You know, I used to subscribe to his newsletter. I've been to an event with him there. Um, and there was a number of times in this book where I was ready to put the book down because I disagreed with him. And mm -hmm. just as that happened, he pulled back from that. And it's such a nuanced read. Like, it, it's really well written. I think he probably wrote it a little bit too fast. Um and I think at the end of it, he kind of acknowledges that. And it could have been a bit longer and and whatever. But it he talks about treating the world like a fish tank as opposed to, you know, he, and he gives this wonderful, and I'm going to get it wrong, but like the, the difference between an Israeli chicken and a Palestinian hen or something like that. The Palestinian hen, chicken, whatever it is, <laughs> like has learned to adapt in any given situation and will produce eggs and survive in any environment. Whereas there's really hen like can only survive if you give it the right antibiotics and it's like bred to be like do super numbers of eggs all of the time, but it will die if you don't tend to it. And he uses this, like it's almost like a fish tank model of like you put fish in a fish tank and you have to look after the environment. Otherwise the fish die. But if you put the fish in a river the fish are fine, like, and the, it just all like nature has a way of looking after itself. And so there's loads of stuff he doesn't say in the book. Like he doesn't say, this is my anarchist view of the future, which it blatantly is. He never uses that word. And by anarchist, I'm using the word that you and I know and other people who live that kind of lifestyle, which is if we break things down into people who are close to the thing that needs fixing and looking after, rather than big governments and people deciding on a global scale what needs to happen, things will be cool. He also um, doesn't talk about, what was the thing? So he talks about this kind of big path and smaller paths. He also doesn't talk about like globalization. And But the thing that he does talk about, and I want you to respond to this, but like is about storytelling and how we've put on science the burden of knowing. Like everything which can be known is now given over to science. And the example of that would be like previously we talked about saving the whales and 
like helping making sure that the polar ice caps don't melt. And now all we talk about is the number of CO2 particles per million hmm. and making that go down or like uh, level off and everything else works towards that number. And so there are other ways of knowing apart from cold, hard science, which we need to be talking about. Anyway, that's a bit of a ramble, but I would definitely recommend reading it. It's good stuff. Yeah, that that sounds like something I need to uh, go sit on my couch and and read and have a think. Because as you were talking there, I was also thinking about um, anti-fragile and yeah. the the idea that humans need to be more anti-fragile. And as a former German National League roller derby player, I have some opinions uh, <laughs> about that and what it actually means from a physical perspective because roller derby is a very chaotic game and you cannot mm. like you have to be fit to play but you can't train your body for the way that you're going to get hit right like you can't you are going to get hit by another person on roller skates and you are on roller skates so however your body moves yeah, in that yeah. motion that moment is like you can't really plan for it it's chaos mm. um and so this this like the idea of being anti-fragile Physically, I have some opinions about, but also like mentally, the, you know, the idea that you can, that we need to get back to actually thinking about the world in, in ways that like, how do I connect this to, I'm having, I'm having a hard time getting the picture in my head to be language in my mouth at the moment. <laughs> Have you ever had that? But I'm thinking about this, like this fish tank and that you can, that, um, you know, if we design the world in a particular way, then it's going to represent the fish tank. And I haven't read the book, dear listener. So I'm, I'm trying to pull these metaphor ideas together and try to understand what is it that he's actually saying that we as a, well, as a so for example, should be doing. Well, so for example, if we all, if something happens so that all the human race died out tomorrow, nature would be awesome and fine and actually regenerate really quickly. Totally. So when we talk about the climate crisis, it's actually we're interested in saving ourselves as a species. And so it's a bit weird to be telling a story about saving the planet by reducing the amount of CO2. What we're actually talking about is saving the human species and our current way of life, which is something he talks about a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you give the example of fixing your car and whatever. Um, Adam Greenfield, who I follow on on Mastodon, who is one of my favorite authors, and so it's amazing I get to interact with him and stuff. It's like the early days of Twitter again. Um, he talks about like having um, an individual first aid kit with you and something which can stop people bleeding out because mm-hmm. the chances are, given the underfunding, given the multiple crises, the rolling crises that we're in, the chances are that you'll phone the ambulance and the cell tower will be down or the wait's too long and the person you're trying to help bleeds to death mm. and you should have something with you to help. So all of these things, like it sounds like we're going backwards in terms of progress, but there never was. Like if, you're, if you've got any understanding of history, there never was just a constant progression of things getting better over time. Mm. Like it's always been a bit of a roller coaster, and so preparing for things getting worse, we're not is entirely reasonable. 
there's a there's a, a presentation I rewatched by Vinay Gupta um, while I was off for for three weeks, um, and I'm going to share it because he talks about different responses to what I've just been talking about and how the response of some people, especially like men in America, is like tooling up and being survivalists and getting you know lots of food in and a bunker, and that's great, but you're only going to be able to survive by yourself for not very long time. And then there's other responses, which are like transition towns, which is trying to help your community move to a different paradigm. Now I'm going to find it because it's a, it's a good talk. It's about 10 years old now, but yeah. it's, um, it's well worth a, a watch. Well, I think we fell down into a bit of a, wow, we've kind of went all over the place here with our, our spontaneous podcasting. I really enjoyed that. That was great. I think we well, have even, to wrap it up, though, because we have a meeting in one minute. <laughs> even if it's a bit of catharsis, it's all good. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We're always well, happy for your feedback. Bye. Or not. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. <laughs>